Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 will be our exposition this morning. I do want to say thank you for the many kind expressions of love for our family over this Christmas season. And um, Tatum had a Christmas that was just out of, out of the world. I mean, it was just beautiful to see her heart in the midst of all that. And many of you have loved on her. And so thank you for bringing joy to a little kid's heart. And um, and then Casey and, and Nate, thank you so much for stepping in in a moment's notice. A strep throat would not let me speak. So, brother, thank you again for that. And, and of course, comes out of left field when the preacher says he can't preach. And, um, and those guys got to scramble to get ready. So I appreciate the fact that they was able to put together some messages that, that honored Christ. And so I appreciate those things. Um just want to remind you before we dive into this that tonight at 6 p.m. we are having our Sunday nights at the MVBC. We're starting that back up and we're going to be talking about the realities and the righteous roles that uh, a man and a woman have in marriage. And so we're going to be discussing that. Uh, in a couple weeks, I don't know if you've seen what's happening up north in Canada to, uh, to our neighbors to the north, the, the, the wave of persecution that's coming to our brothers and sisters up there is unprecedented, I think, to some degree. Not surprising, but I think it's one of those things where we need to be mindful of, and um, we'll have more to say about that in a couple weeks, but I just want you to be mindful of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, and as it infiltrates its way to America. Let us pray, and we'll dive into the Word of God. Father, again, uh, we just love you. We rejoice in your goodness and kindness to us. We see your hand move often. We recognize it, and it humbles us. It causes us to reflect about your character, your attributes, and we marvel on how you take what seems to be unsurmountable odds and flip them according to your glory, likeness, and kindness. We pray, Lord, that as we dive into the scriptures this year, Father, that we continue to grow and Looking forward to what the gospel of Mark teaches us. Looking forward to the reality of, of Jesus just being on, on front and center and display. And, and Father, that is our prayer for our own souls, that Jesus takes up the rightful place of being supreme in our life. Help us, Spirit, as we desire to, to honor you with your, what your word says. Maybe apply it according to its truth. Be with the preacher, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A fast-moving gospel, titled this gospel, the gospel of Mark, the one who does, as we've seen Jesus just 
moved from scene to scene to scene, desiring to do what honors the Lord. Of course, he's on a mission, desiring to proclaim not only that he is God, but a salvation that he has brought. And Mark brings all this out for us. And this morning, we come to a situation where this is the third conflict, uh, five, in which Mark gives us this rapid account of the, the opposition towards Jesus. And you'll notice the title, subtitle today is The Kingdom Realities, this, this, this idea of what Jesus has come. He, he shuts the mouths of his, his oppressors and gets them on, on course to what he's going to do. And so it's, it's remarkable. Let me read our passage, and then we'll, we'll dive into this. Starting in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, the Holy Word of God reads this, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom was with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth of an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Thus is the reading of God's holy word. Like I say, if you've been with us over the months, you know that we find ourselves in, like I say, these five critical situations. These are rocks thrown at Christ in his ministry. Uh, of course, in this case, they're evaluating his his disciples who are doing something that is uncommon in what the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are doing when it concerns fasting. This is challenge number three. Remember the first two challenges were all focused on Jesus' claims to forgive sinners, to forgive sins, and he did it in remarkable ways. In turn, you find the next rock thrown at him because he associated himself with those same sinners tax collectors, evil people of the day. Those two acts alone caused great friction and established a threat to the religion of the day. And here's the beautiful thing about it. This is Jesus' point. He is starting to, to, to divinely kind of stir the pot, so to speak, so as to gain their attention of the reasons why he has come. We know that only God can forgive sins, amen? And we also at least have a, a religious thought that God surely doesn't associate himself with sinners, but this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus was doing these things that was contrary to what was been established from the law and what they deemed as holy and, and acceptable. He went against the grain and upset the apple cart. Of course, these Pharisees, they, they had a, a form of, of religion. And according to their hearts, Jesus wasn't playing the game right. Jesus is breaking their rules, and they in turn are challenging Jesus and his authority. Their authority is on, on, on 
cause here because Jesus is, is bucking the system. And this third challenge has to do with fasting. It tells us that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist fasted regularly as a part of their, their pious faith. It is something that they often did. It was a sign of devotion and holiness. And so the rock is thrown as they watch Jesus in the ministry swell in and outside of Capernaum and there in the area of Galilee. He, he, he is, these religious leaders are concerned and so they question within their own soul, if Jesus, if this Jesus who he says he is God in the flesh, the Messiah, why aren't his disciples fasting just like them? And the beauty of all this is that Jesus, Jesus rebukes them and then turns their attention to what he's doing by giving them three analogies. And this is what we see, this, this kingdom realities of what he is going to usher in. The fact that he was there bringing forth this kingdom and upsetting the apple cart, of course, he is bringing spiritual truth to help us understand his role and his purpose. In essence, he's telling us this, that the kingdom of God, this kingdom that he's bringing forth with his presence is something that is going to be totally new. And it's not going to fit in light of the old covenant or as he will say, analogy of putting a, a patch on an old wineskin. No, this will be a new covenant, a new covenant, a new creation, and, and this is something that shouldn't be foreign to them. The Old Testament clearly declares that this was going to be this new heart, that, that God was going to do some things. It wasn't that they understood all of it, but yet as Jesus unfolds these things, he's definitely saying there is going to be a new way, a new covenant, and he's going to bring it. We see this in the, in the Old Testament with the Ezekiel chapter 36. Look to the screen where it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in, the, in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. He goes out against Israel. He's prophesying against them. He goes on to declare, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances prophesied so many years earlier where Christ comes and says the fulfillment of all of that. It's pretty remarkable to see the gospel, exactly what Jesus is going to do. He is going to, to bring forth a salvation that will redeem the sinner and put a heart of flesh into those who repent and believe in him. Not only that, the dwelling of the Spirit will be upon those who, who trust Him. And, and so within this prophecy, you, you see all this starting to unfold 
in what Christ is doing here in the Gospel of Mark. And what God is saying is that there will be a heart transformation. There will be a, a renewness of life. There will be forgiveness of sins. There will be, get this, obedience to the things of God. Where this dwelling of the Spirit will allow you to understand and discern the heart of God and, and the ability to be transformed in such a way that you walk in His ways and you walk in holiness. Now, this is interesting because all this is eternal. It's inside the heart of the believer. And this is really where the rub is. If you think about the confrontation that we just read in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, they were, they were concerned about what Jesus was doing and his disciples were, weren't doing and the whole issue of, of, of exterior things. They weren't following the established religion of the day, what could be seen externally. And so here's the rub, external, outward religion versus Christ and Christianity. External religion of the flesh versus the inside transformation of the heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. By the way, that rub still exists today. We live in a day and age where there are many churches that have this form of, of outward religious form and yet deny the power of the transforming work of Jesus Christ in their heart. Let me just say it this way, beloved. There's a difference between religion and Christianity. And this is so important to know the difference between the two. Why? Because your soul is at stake in light of these two. The great New England preacher Philip Brooks was proposed a question when he was once asked about this rub, about Christianity and religion. And the question was this, and I quote, is it necessary to have a personal experience with Jesus Christ in order to be a Christian? End quote. It is said of this preacher, Brooks, he sighed and then replied this. And I quote him by saying, My friend, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Religion focuses on man's outward activities, but Christianity focuses in on the heart. Religion is, is, is more about head knowledge, and Christianity is all about transforming your heart. Christianity is about making a dead man come to life to the spiritual realities about God and Christ and his salvation. Religion is all about making man an outward shrine thinking that you're good enough to meet God. But Christianity is all about an inward conversion, as we see on the cross, of a heart through grace that is run through forgiveness, whereby God makes us acceptable to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Religion is about a man turning over a new leaf, but Christianity is about a man receiving a new birth 
Religion is about a man standing in, in new habits. Christianity is all about man receiving a new heart. Religion is about being reformed, but Christianity is about being born again. Christianity, religion, they oppose one another. Religion is about man's attempt to gain salvation by human achievement. Christianity is God's work on behalf of man at the cross. Did you get that? God doing a work of, of salvation by divine power and infuses his righteousness into the believer. I mean, this is what is happening here and what's colliding for us in this narrative. This is what Jesus was confronted with in these verses, the old versus the new. And according to verse 18 of our passage, these were disciples, like I said, of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. They had an outward form of religion, but had never been reborn. The fullness of salvation that Christ has brought has never came across their table. And Jesus takes notice of this, and he takes it and takes it to a divine level and shows that there is a difference. And like I say, it's important that your souls get it right. My concern as a pastor sometimes is this, is that those who are playing the game of external religion without receiving the grace and the power and the mercy of Christ. If you're playing the game of external religion, thinking that all I have to do is show up on a Sunday, maybe do a few commitments for the Lord. You find yourself outside of the grace and mercy of Jesus. I'm reminded of this separation of religion from true Christianity and what Christ brings. In Matthew chapter 7, look at the screen. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Listen to these words by our Lord. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Humbling words. What separated those who will enter the kingdom of heaven and those will not? These words that, that haunt the soul, that, that awakens the, the religious one to this reality that you must come when the, to, to Christ, through Him, to God. These words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice Beloved, true Christianity is about having a right relationship with the Lord and Savior. Where He established forgiveness and grace, where He makes you and transfers you into the kingdom of God. And because of that, you come to Him in faith. All of this is transferred through the simplicity of believing that, yes, you are a sinner, and yes, he is Lord and Savior. I need him. I trust him. I will follow him.
And then it's a life led by obedience. Much like Ezekiel 36 has said, with obedience to the things of godliness. Where the dwelling of the Holy Spirit resides in the life of the believer, and now he has the ability to obey and honor God. Listen, that's why we preach much about Jesus here. Not about religion, but about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus redeems, saves sinners, transfers them into his kingdom, and writes their names in his blood in the Lamb's Book of Life. this blood that was cut, this covenant that is bringing forth, this is what's that rub, an old versus new, and, and trying to understand exactly what Christ is doing. I get it. We, we have a whole world full of people who do not like religion, and neither should you. But the realness of Christ in Christianity, the realness of being transformed, the realness of, of, of having Jesus Christ come and make a dead man come to life that's what the world needs to see. Now let's go back to our passage, knowing that this is what is the undergirding of this narrative. I want you to show you quickly just the, the rock that is thrown in verse 18. And of course, it's, it's concerning fasting here. Look again at verse 18 where it reads, John's disciples, the Pharisees were fasting. And they came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The issue at hand, fasting, which, by the way, it seems to be somewhat of a lost spiritual discipline within the church today. But yet fasting, according to the old scriptures, scriptures really only points to one fasting a year, and that was on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where you would consider your sins in light of the holy priest going and, and atoning for the nation's sin. So it was a mark of, of seeking repentance and humility and forgiveness. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees kind of ramped it up a little bit. We know this according to Luke chapter 18, where, where it talks about the the the, the Pharisee having this qualification of being somebody who fasted twice a, a week. And so they added to it, according to the rabbinic law, that this is what holiness looks like. And so the Pharisees added to this one-time event to which they required that you fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And this was to show the world that they are holy. It's interesting to me when you read a little bit more about how they went about this, the Pharisees, they would often dishevel themselves. In other words, they would allow their hair to kind of go crazy. They would have bed head in the morning. They have often said that some of them would even kind of put some kind of white paste on their face to look solemn. They would go through this, this, this idea of having their clothes in disarray uh, and refusing a shower or a, or a bath and, and, and having this idea that they are in the midst of being holy. All in external, external religion type of way. 
course, this was a self-righteous thing. This was a self-righteous fasting of the religious establishment of the day to, to tell the people that, that they are more holy than, than they. In reality, Jesus calls them what? Whitewashed tombs. Void of life. Have an appearance of godliness, but yet not having and denying the power thereof. And so here, here they come, right? They're, they're observing Jesus and his disciples, and they notice that his disciples aren't fasting. Of course, this was a condemning question. And even though it was directed towards Jesus' disciples, it ultimately was a pushback against Jesus. Why aren't your disciples following you since you call yourself holy? This was a rebuke, a rock that was thrown to point out the differences of those who had gathered, yes, Try to put a chink in Christ's armor, yes. But Jesus takes it and rebukes them and, of course, brings it in ways of an analogy to explain what the kingdom looks like and what it will be like. We pick this up in verse 19 to 20 where we see this rebuking response. Look again at verse 19. It says, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom was with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? It's interesting, he's using a, an analogy of, of something that is, is something that is well celebrated within the Jewish custom. He's using a wedding. Surely, in the midst of those, and of course in those days, did the Jews, they, they went all out when it came to weddings. Matter of fact, a wedding often lasted a whole week. And it was about the couple. And it was about festiveness. And it was about the whole issue. Is that a word, festiveness? No, it is today. Very festive, right? Groomsmen were a part of that. Everybody was a part of that. Unlike today where a couple gets married and they're launched onto their honeymoon, here it was a whole week with the couple. Everybody gathered celebrating. And because of this was a grand event, rabbinical law says, and this is pretty interesting, they said that when it comes to a wedding, all in attendance were relieved of their religious obligations, particularly observing fasting. They didn't want anything to get in the way of their joy. And so here you have Jesus, I mean, striking to the heart like he normally does. And it says, while the bridegroom was with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? He goes on to say, so long as they had the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And it's not that he excuses this act of, of fasting. He says in verse 20, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, that seems pretty simple, but this is very deep. Well, what do I mean by this? Let me pull some of this out for you. He, he is tying some, some messianic prophecy to what he's saying to the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, for, for no doubt the Pharisees would have got the connection. 
as we know, Mark is presenting Jesus in this gospel, and he's presenting Jesus as bringing about the kingdom, bringing about a message of salvation, presenting this whole idea that Jesus is king. Jesus is pointing to the reality that he is the Messiah. And what's interesting to me, when you look into this, and this correlation to what the Messiah will do according to Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament sometimes depicts God's final salvation as a great banquet, right? A celebration. The rabbis would call it a messianic banquet. This is something of celebration. We get this from Isaiah chapter 25. And I want you to see this connection. First one says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. It goes on in verse 6 of that same chapter of Isaiah. For it reads this, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of, of aged wine, choice pieces with marl, and refined aged wine, and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is all is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. Of course, that is speaking about the great banquet that will come, Christ in his second coming, where the church is the bride of Christ, and you have this, this celebration. And yet within Mark chapter 2, you have this, this connotation of a, at least a taste that the kingdom of God is here by throwing a banquet. But there's more. Isaiah 65, verse 13 and 14, we get another taste of this messianic banquet when it says when... Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. And so here you have Jesus in line with his proclamation that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's going to bring this new covenant that is, inaugurates the reality that it will come to fulfillment with the eternal kingdom, with him on the throne. And he presents himself as the host of this messianic banquet. Again, verse 20 in Mark 2, the days will come, however, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Again, a, a prophetic utterance all the way back. This idea of being taken away, it's, it's, it's passive in the Greek. It has the idea of being removed. It points to an event that will happen. And of course, we see that most likely referring to Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension. But all of this was prophesied even in the great chapter of Isaiah 53. Look at the screen, Isaiah 53, 8. 
hidden into this great suffering servant uh, passage of prophecy, you have this being said by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Simple statement. Tying the Messiah to messianic prophecies that will happen. I don't know about you, but when I see things like that, I just marvel at the divine sovereign hand of God in the midst of this whole thing. You'd be a fool to, 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 to miss this, that, that the precision of the gospel and how it's displayed and how it's unfolded and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. If he's not Lord, we're a mess. But here's the beautiful thing about it. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is the Messiah. There's no doubt in our minds and our hearts that he is the anointed one the one that God has sent to redeem sinners. And I can't help but, but, but point to a little bit of some application from this. And, and there, there's much to be said here. But can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's solidifying the truth here, right? That he is the Messiah, and thus we who are his children, and as the church, will be seen eventually as the bride of Christ when he leaves, Right? I don't know about you, but when I think about the, the banquet and the reality and comparison of being fasting and being somber and silent, what Jesus is saying that when you're in Christ, there is much joy to be had. And I don't know if that's how you look at your, your salvation. I mean, every day should be a day of rejoicing and knowing that you have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. It should cause you to think about all that, is, that has happened, that, that He has redeemed you that he has brought you into the fold, that he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places according to Ephesians chapter 1, that he's bringing you about to, to have this eternal celebration where there will be rejoicing with the king at the front. Listen, I long for that day. And why am I pointing this out? Because knowing that there's going to be an eternal, joyful state of the believer in Christ Jesus at this messianic banquet that will be for eternity, it puts everything in perspective in this life. The trials that you and I endure are nothing compared to eternal glory and joy that awaits you in heaven. Death can't take that away. Sickness, cancer, that cannot take it away. Illness, losing loved ones, none of that will strip away this messianic banquet that will have eternal joy with Jesus on the throne and you as the guest. I don't know about you, but I long for that. I long for that. A heavenly banquet. Where there's rejoicing. Now there's more. As Jesus continues to answer the Pharisees, he turns to two more analogies of the kingdom. Look at verse 21 and 22 with me. 
It reads there, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth of an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and the worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But, no, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. It's pretty interesting. Jesus, knowing the heart, he, he established this reality that he has come. He's bringing the kingdom. He's bringing a new covenant. He's bringing salvation. And he knows where the Pharisees are going to go with this. And what he's telling them is that what he is bringing with this new covenant doesn't fit into this old Judaism that they experience. In other words, it is an extension of it. It's something totally new. And so just as no one fasted at a wedding, no one should sew a new patch into an old garment or put wine in an old wineskins. I think we get the concept. If you were to take a patch of something that's already been, been washed and the patch hasn't, and you sew it, and then you wash it, what happens? It rips away from the, the seams and makes a bigger tear than what you desire. When it comes to the wineskin, something maybe a little bit different for us. You know, thinking about, uh, they often use the height of, of, of goats, and they would make these, 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 I guess, these bags. And of course, there was some stretchiness in the midst of all of it, and the wine would be, it, when it fermented, it would allow it to grow. But then when it was done fermenting, the wineskin would, would rest, but yet it, it would, would lose all of its stretchiness. Can I say it that way? And so if you were to take new wine and put it in old wineskins, you're at the risk of bursting these wineskins because they've already done their job, and, and this fermenting process would just burst these bags open. So what's going on here? Jesus is pointing to the reality that when he, the Messiah, has come, and as he is there with the Pharisees, he has not come to reform Judaism, but to launch a new covenant. And this is where the rub is, and this is a pretty big issue even today where there are people out there thinking that we've got to conform ourselves to Judaism. We've got to conform ourselves to Judaism. Listen, Jesus says, I am the substance of what the Old Testament Judaism points to. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I'm bringing a new covenant. It's not that the Old Covenant is wiped away. It was a, a, a foreshadowing of what was going to be complete in Christ Jesus. And too often, I think he knows what's going on, right? He knows omnisciently what's going on in their hearts. He knows that they're so hanging on to this old covenant and this old understanding of how to approach God that he's saying, listen, you know that day of Yom Kippur? They will be done away with. Why? Because I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only that, Scripture tells us that Jesus came to fulfill the law, right? He didn't come to abolish it. He fulfilled he is the he, He's the perfect nature of, of, of everything that the old covenant was trying to do, the law, the Torah, everything that it was pointing to. 
And what he's saying is that he is the solution. He's the answer. That he holds salvation in himself and is through a new covenant. And if you frequent here and we are taking communion, you know that we often go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul accounts this idea of this new covenant. And I'll remind you of it up on the screen in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, where it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, and the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is, what does it say there? The new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. What he's saying is that his blood seals this, this, this new covenant where we in turn put our faith and trust only in him and salvation. He's not looking for external rewards. He's looking for an internal transformation that he can bring. And so no wonder Jesus clashed with the religious establishment of the day. They didn't get it. He teaches in this analogy something that they should understand of what he's doing. And all of this to usher in this new covenant where his blood is spelt that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I think about this, and you just think about all the more why we worship Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus. I think about the writer of Hebrews who, who spends a whole book about the supremacy of Jesus over what? Over the Old Covenant. I think of, of the writings of the Apostle Paul, and this is so key, and I would encourage you to write this verse down. Colossians 2 Verse 16 and 17, where in two verses, Paul sums this up and what Jesus is, is saying to us in our narrative. He says there, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. All those were old covenant ideas. Things which are, listen, a mere shadow of what is to come. And Paul resoundingly says, but the substance belongs to Christ. Why in the world would we desire to spin our wheels and have this external appearance of following the old covenant when you have Jesus Christ, the substance of what those things pointed to? That's why our devotion only goes to him. And that's why you only need Jesus to save you. You don't need church baptism. You don't need church membership. You need Christ, the one who can forgive you of your sins. No wonder Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Beloved, that is true Christianity. Jesus, King, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Savior. And Jesus, in a remarkable narrative, brings us about in such a way that no doubt got the attention of the Pharisees. Why? Because we will find in chapter 3 that they're going to go after his head. They understand what he's saying here. And they're not liking it. Before then, there's another conflict about the Sabbath. Of course, he's God, the creator of the Sabbath. Pretty interesting what we'll see, Lord willing, next week. 
I don't know if you walked in these doors this morning thinking about where you're at with Christ. But here it is, front and center. The world has a form of religion that desires to think that if we do good, we feel good, right? And if we go through these motions, if we do A, B, C, and D, then surely that draws us closer to God the Father. Listen, Jesus Christ in Christianity simply says that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. It's that simple. You can't save yourself. You can't work your way to heaven. There's nothing that you can do. You need Christ. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he died. That's why he resurrected. That's why he ascended. And that's why he ascended on the right hand of God the Father. And that's why he's coming back again. He is king. As you go home this morning, my prayer is that you discuss these things. That you'll be able to look at your wife or your husband and say, listen, honey, are we have a form of religion denying there the power thereof of the saving grace of Jesus? Or do we have Christ who has changed us and transformed us and made us new and brought us into the kingdom where we can say that he knows us and by his grace we know him. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life longing for this eternal banquet where there's great joy of celebrating the Messiah. I pray that that stirs your conversation today. If you have questions about Christ, questions about the salvation, by all means you come and you talk to one of us. Somebody has brought you, you, you turn to them and ask them, do you understand Christ and what he's talking about? Can you share more with them? Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you again for the joy it is to, to look at your word. What seemed as a simple narrative had such a, a deep, prophetic, messianic tone to it. The kingdom realities where you are king, where you are Lord, displaying your goodness and your kindness. You are truly God in the flesh, dwelling amongst men, atoning for our sins, and bringing redemption. Father, I pray that you would convict, not only confirm the truth, but convict us if we're playing the game, where we have a form of religion and put a smile on our face thinking that when somebody approaches us with a question, do you know Christ, that we, we say, oh yeah, you know, I go to church. I've been raised in church, whatever their comment may be. I pray that you would pierce the heart with your truth and help them understand the need for a transformation, a rebirth, a, a, a being born again, a, a, a a heart transplant, Father. For Jesus, we know that that's what you came to do. You came to save souls. And we exalt you. We worship you. Your name is the name that's above all other names. 
And so we thank you this, this Lord's Day to be able to worship you and to gather underneath the scriptures and have our, our hearts pierced by its truth, knowing that the Spirit will either convict or confirm where our souls are. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.